The reading this morning will come from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. John 12, 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these people came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. It's good to see you. Man, I woke up feeling like it was Seattle out there. And no offense, Pacific Northwest people, but you can have it. You can have it. Yeah, I can't wait for summertime, baby. All the heat and all the humidity, but more importantly, the sunshine. You can take these cloudy skies and gray. You can have it. Why don't we pray? And uh, that's actually the one line that jumped out at me in the songs that we sang, the dawn breaking. I, like, I need the dawn to actually break here. But uh, let's pray that through the gospel, our Father makes the dawn break in our souls as well. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, we're your kids. We're needy. The weather reminds us how, how weak we are, how dependent we are, how much we long for light and life and how much something like gray clouds and dreary weather can not just affect us but actually mirror the reality of what's going on in our souls even though we might have a smile and a glad profession um, sometimes the skies speak a clearer truth about our hearts than our words and our face actually actually do So, Father, we pray that you would make the dawn break in our hearts as we look to you and rehearse the gospel. Jesus, help us to see you as better and beautiful and necessary for our life, but not just necessary, desirable. You are better than anything else and anyone else. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come in our hearts, that your will would be done in our lives today. We pray that you would give us our daily bread for our souls. Feed us as we listen to your voice. Forgive us our sins, the things we have done and the things we have left undone, the things we have said and the things we have left unsaid. Forgive us and help us to forgive those who trespass against us. Father, remind us today that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. So we don't have to be tough, we don't have to be better, We don't have to be seen as strong. We don't have to be seen as beautiful. Uh, Father, you you are beautiful. Jesus, you are better. In spirit, you give us life. So help us to humble humble ourselves and to open our hands uh, to receive this life from you this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I recently resumed a favorite Netflix show. I'm not going to tell you what show it is. I don't want to be judged so early on Sunday morning. Um, but I, I resumed, I think COVID delayed the production of the season that I'm enjoying right now. I think that happened to some of our, some of our shows. Anyway, I started it this week, uh, 
And the first episode was about an hour and 22 minutes long. And it left me evaluating the status of our relationship because while I missed the show, I don't know that our relationship is at that level. There's a lot going on in an, an episode of anything that's an hour plus, a lot of pieces. And um, not trying to be cute, but John 12 is that episode. It's, it's long, but it's not just long. There are a lot of moving pieces to it, and it would be easy to get lost or even tap out. Like, man, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. John 12 is that episode. But if we will look together, I think we'll see the clear theme. I want to show you where the theme comes from in the heart of the chapter. And then I want to I give you some framework for the chapter so that we don't get lost. First, be encouraged Though it's a long episode, John 12 really only has four scenes, so I'll give you the four scenes. And then within those scenes, I do better kind of hang in my mind on, on some key statements that are made through those scenes. So I'm going to give you four scenes and six statements. It sounds like a lot, but it's really not. And I think once we have those, we'll be able to step back and see the passage. And then while we can't deep dive on everything, we will deep dive on some important pieces of it and, and bring, allow the gospel to go to work in our hearts. So John 12, here's the big idea. When when Jesus is increasingly, or when Jesus is my life, right? That's our theme of the, the, the book anyway. Jesus is my life. So when we actually see that and believe it and start living by that, I, at my core, I believe Jesus is my life. I will increasingly follow his pattern and I will increasingly find his place, okay? When I believe actually that Jesus is my life, I will increasingly follow his pattern, his way of life, and I will increasingly find his place. Just so you know that I'm not making that up on a Saturday night because I need something to say on Sunday morning. Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. There's the following piece. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, look, Jesus is walking that way. I think I'll walk that way too. Following in this sense gives the idea of adopting a particular way of life. So Jesus' beliefs, Jesus' convictions, Jesus, whatever he says, wherever he goes, I, it's, it's adopting a full-on life pattern. And where I am, there's place, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. So there's the big idea. If Jesus is my life, when he is, I will increasingly, I will increasingly follow his pattern and find his place. Now, four scenes in this chapter, very briefly. You'll notice um, we have a party in Bethany, an entrance to Jerusalem, a conversation with some Greeks, and then Jesus' final words where he cries out encouraging belief. The first scene happens in verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Bethany was just a little town about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. So the burbs, Jesus is in the burbs. He's gonna be in Jerusalem in just a couple days, in just a day. There's a party there because last week, Darren led us through the exploration of the event where Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. 
you kind of have to throw a party for, I mean, if you celebrate kindergarten graduation, lame, then you kind of have to celebrate somebody coming back from the dead. And so that's what they're doing. They're throwing a big party. Then drop down to verse 12. You'll notice it says, the next day. So here's scene two. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, right? So the party kind of shifts from Bethany. Now the, the crowd shows up in Jerusalem and there's a big entrance. Jesus is welcomed as something of a king. Now, mind you, the crowd views him as a political revolutionary, but nonetheless, uh, welcome, to, welcome to Jerusalem, king. It was honestly for the crowd, it was kind of their January 6, January 7 moment, if, if you get what I'm saying. Scene three, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, they have a conversation, they, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So scene three, conversation with some outsiders, and Jesus announces clearly for the first time, I'm about to die. That's what he means, that the hour has come that I'm about to be glorified. If you remember, all through John, what's, what's the tense of that sentence been? The hour's coming. And so now here's Jesus' clear announcement that the hour has come. Okay, and scene four really, uh, really flows out of verse 37, which says, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then if you drop down to verse 44, okay, so we're, we're facing unbelief again, but still in mercy, Jesus one more time before he really goes in tight with his boys for that final week before his crucifixion, he, he has a conversation with the crowd and again says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in, in him who sent me. And he goes on to unpack how he has come, not in judgment, but in mercy. Okay, so our four scenes, party in Bethany, welcome to Jerusalem, conversation with Greeks where he says, hey, it's time, it's time, it's no longer in the future, here we go. I'm about to die and be lifted up. And then scene four, where Jesus again confronts unbelief, but still offers mercy. Now, so there's the four scenes. Here are the six statements, and I'm just gonna put them right on the screen so you can see them, and then we'll just start unpacking them. This, a little unconventional for me, but this is just gonna kind of be our outline in the text this morning. Here they are. Maybe my favorite one in the, in the whole place, in the whole chapter, leave her alone, Jesus says, leave her alone. Mary was being harassed by Judas, and Jesus says, leave her alone. Yeah, exactly. Number two, uh, also, man, I guess they're all my favorite. He said, that's why they're all up here. Uh, fear not, your king is coming. Fear not, your king is coming. In verse 15, verse 16, this is my new life verse, and I hope to persuade you by the time we leave here, it should be yours too. Of the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, it says they don't understand something, right? So the verse goes, at first, and then it transitions to say, but when, and then it concludes, then. Like they got it, right? Story of my life. Number four, uh, this is obviously a concise summary. If you love your life, you're gonna lose it, Jesus says, but if you hate your life, you're gonna keep it. We're gonna unpack that because some of you read that and you're like, Jesus is, like, it's self-hatred is what the gospel calls me to. That's really confusing. Number five says, in light of everything Jesus has done, people still did not believe him in verse 37. But again, in verse 44, you would expect judgment at that time. Like you would expect Jesus to just have had enough and to 
execute judgment right there or to forbid people from ever being reconciled to the Father. But yet again, we see one more offer of mercy. So let's pick it up with the first one. Leave her alone. That's in verse 7. Who's being left alone or who needs to be left alone? It's Mary. So Jesus has gone to Bethany. Like we said, it's a party for Lazarus. Uh, Martha's getting things ready. The, the John says that Mary has positioned herself at Jesus' feet, and she breaks open uh, her most expensive essential oil. Um, it's called nard. It was an import from India, so it was from far away. It was hard to get, just like your essential oils. Um, it was about a pound, it says. And you see it says 300 denarii. Some of you maybe have a more modern translation where it's probably reading for you that that's a year's wages. That's your entire W-2 in 16 ounces. And what does she do? She pours the entire thing out on Jesus' feet. A year's wages, guys. So Judas, well, that's not the only thing she did that was scandalous. In this culture, it would have been uh, very unconventional, we could just say it that way, borderline inappropriate, but unconventional anyway, for her to let all of her hair down, just in this, to be very relaxed in, in this setting. And she lets her hair down in that setting and proceeds to wash, wipe Jesus' feet, to, to, to wipe the oil on her feet to, his feet to anoint him. So a lot of what's going on is we see incredible expense we see incredible emotion. We see expression that's unconventional, right? So everything's, everything's elevated right now. And so Judas speaks in and he, he wants to correct her. Now, the narrator lets us know that he's taking issue with the cost and he's posturing himself as more moral and says, what a waste. I mean, if we really loved God, wouldn't we sell your essential oils and feed an entire family for a year. Wouldn't that be better? And Jesus says to him, verse seven, leave her, leave her alone, Judas. Uh, he wasn't interested. You, you read it right there. It says he was a thief. He managed the money bags. He wanted the money for himself. He did not care about doing the right thing. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, it looks like it becomes a lesson about impoverished people and how to care for them. And certainly there's implication there, but that's not the point. Jesus is just stiff arming Judas without totally calling him out, just calling his bluff and saying, that's not what this is about. And he says, let, allow her to have this moment. What she's doing is in response to what I have done. I brought her brother back from the dead. And so she's responding joyfully to that. She's posturing himself, or she, so Mary embodies our big idea this morning, that if Jesus is our life, we will find his place. Mary is the beautiful embodiment of that truth. She has postured herself at the feet of Jesus, which is to tell us she views herself as his servant. She exists for his fame and for the good of others. And the, the ointment that's poured out is representative of her joy, her worship, if you will, her response for who Jesus is and what he has done. Judas, probably speaking for everybody there, and I think, calls her out and says, this is excessive and a waste. And Jesus says to her, to him, 
leave her alone. Allow her this moment. Now, she didn't know Jesus was about to die and be buried, but Jesus was saying, in some way, this is foreshadowing my death and burial that's about to come. Allow this moment to exist and allow this woman to express her joy. Leave her alone. Guys, sometimes, not sometimes, normatively, when the gospel really goes to work in our hearts and we begin to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us, that draws out from within us a response that would likely be criticized by people who have not yet experienced death to life from Jesus. But it happens in our religious circles too. For those of us kind of born and bred in conventional religious expression, we've, we've been taught the manners of gathered worship. And so when somebody comes in among us and their heart is absolutely gripped by who Jesus is and what he has done, and they're more expressive than our culture would necessarily be or normally be comfortable with, or the, yeah, the more, more, more expressive, in our hearts, we say the same words that Judas says here, and Jesus would say to you, leave her alone, leave her alone. And our hearts say, no, that emotional response is too excessive. It's too emotive, too expressive. That decision they're making in life to walk away from financial security and to pursue Jesus and go serve people in this impoverished place, that's too radically expensive. That's not wise. And to you, Jesus would say, leave her alone. We look and we say that's too expressive and too expensive. And Jesus would look at, would, would look at us and say, really? So you're saying... I brought her brother back from the dead and he's alive and her response now is more excessive than what I did for her? Leave her alone. Guys, we have not experienced anything less from the hands of Jesus. But very often our response to Jesus is far less than what we see Mary's. The issue is not that we have been forgiven less or that we have received less. The issue is that we are less aware of what Jesus has done for us. Lazarus brought, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead and gave him life. So listen, she's responding because her brother was given life, brought back from the dead. You have been brought back from the dead and given life. So if anything, our response naturally should exceed that of Mary's. I mean, what's too emotive? What's too expressive? What is too expensive? What cost is too high in response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Leave her alone. Leave her alone in your heart and leave her alone with your words. And the next time a younger person than you who is just so impassioned with the gospel that they're gonna make a hasty, foolish decision in our eyes and walk away from financial security and plunge into the frontier of making Jesus known in some crazy place with no guaranteed income and every fiber in you wants to say, don't do it, that's not wise. Leave them alone, let them go, let them go. Leave her alone. So there's our first one, leave her alone. The second one, Jesus now, the party leaves Bethany. It moves to Jerusalem. The crowd moves. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And let's see, verse 15. Let's back up a little bit. Verse I'll start at 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means save me now. I need rescue now. Save me now. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Fear not, your king is coming. Guys, they had everything to fear. They were an occupied people, an oppressed people, an abused people, a people with no justice, a people with laws slanted against them so they could not flourish. Um, they, could not, they, could not, they could not flourish. In the, they, didn't, they didn't have a life of freedom. They were oppressed in every way. It was unjust. Rome was brutal in its occupation. They had legitimate reason to be afraid every morning up. They didn't have freedom in their own neighborhoods. No freedom. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the announcement is made, fear not, your king is coming. Now there was a misunderstanding. The uh, palm leaves had become very much a nationalized symbol. So this is kind of a patriotic expression. Um, this pronouncement from the Old Testament would have, the crowd was basically crowning Jesus, not just as king, but as the revolutionary who would unseat the Roman power and take over and bring the long-awaited freedom. So there's a, a misunderstanding from the crowd, and to clear that up, they would have expected Jesus to ride in on a war horse, but instead he rides in on this humble animal, and this animal was a symbol of peace. And so there's this twin announcement. Yes, Jesus is coming as king, but he's coming as a peacemaking king, and he doesn't make peace the way that we want him to or expect him to or the way that we would try to make peace ourselves. But still, fear not, family. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. Now, guys, we have fear. Some of us articulate our fears. Many of us do not, but we all have fears. Every one of us has fear present in our hearts. And to you this morning, Jesus would say, fear not, son, fear not, daughter. Uh, your king has come and your king is coming. Fear not. Fear not, son. Fear not, daughter. But there's, a, there's a, a rebuke for us here too because we are more like the people in the crowds than we're not. And we would like Jesus to ride in on a war horse, and we would like for him to dispel our fear the way that we would. So for them, it was political power. Guys, for my entire lifetime, the church has been far too invested in political power in the West as if that is the way to usher in God's kingdom. And this scene, if there is no other scene, crushes that idea. The kingdom of God and peace and justice will never be ushered in through political power. I mean, growing up, I still remember, man, I was, more, I was discipled more by Rush Limbaugh than I was Jesus himself, probably. And so for maybe not your experience, but for so much of my life, Christianity has been entangled with a right-leaning political expression. But I would venture to say, if that's not your experience, yours is the other way, and it's entangled with a left-leaning political persuasion. We all would try to hope in princes and kings and power and structure rather than Jesus, the rescuing king himself. Guys, Jesus is coming to make peace, but he's not gonna make it the way that you would or the way that you want to see it done or the way he doesn't. He is our peacemaking king and he would say to us this morning, fear not, your king is coming. So I would ask you, what are you afraid of this morning? What is your dominant fear right now? The crowd had a dominant fear and the words they needed to hear were fear not, your king is coming. Well, family, your king has already come and he's coming again. 
and he will dispel all of those fears. And in the end, we will see that even those things we have been afraid of, he will take all of the broken, oppressive pieces and use them ultimately for our good. Family, fear not. Your king is coming. Our third our third line is tied to this scene and it's my new life verse. I honestly hadn't really seen it this way until this week. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So these, these comments, they did not understand at first, but when, then. Guys, if that is not the story of your life, what is? At first, when I was in high school, I thought, but when, then. At first, I thought my parents were horrible, but then, I hit my 20s and 30s and had kids of my own, 41, oh, then, right? At first, I thought I was going to be God, God's gift to women, but then, I married one, and then, Not so much the gift. <laughs> Life sucks. At first, I thought, fill in the blank. You're in a hard season right now. At first, the but then is coming, guys. And when that day comes, then, but when, we are able to look back. Guys, there are maybe two things that we should see here. Maybe it's three. One is these words should instill a whole lot of humility that most of us just don't walk around with. Most of our lives are lived in the at first. We just don't know. We don't see. We judge God. We judge others. We, man, and it, we all know it because we've lived the years in our youth. We are so idealistic, so sure-handed, so close-fisted about our ideas. So much of our life is lived in the at first moments. But then, guys... We need a little bit more but then. And when that day comes, and Jesus shows us more fully who he is, we begin to see the pieces. Humility. Guys, I think it also should lead to gentleness with other people. We need to be more gentle. If we are always in and out of at first and but then when kind of life patterns, that means everybody else around us is too. And just because you have come to understand something about Jesus, and you know something to be beautiful does not mean that the person seated next to you has had the similar life experience that would lead you to that same place and, and show them the same beauty. We've gotta be more gentle. And guys, maybe the third piece of this is patience. How patient is God with us? These aren't people in the crowd that are being described. These are Jesus' closest disciples. They had been with him 24-7, except for his brief breaks away, 24-7 for three years. He had downloaded so much teaching, and he had modeled for them, and they still didn't get it. Guys, I'm 41 and there is so much about my father and about life and about being a husband, about being a pastor, about being a dad, about so many things I don't get. And while that can be threatening to me and off-putting to some of you, I have a father who loves me and keeps me and is going to persevere and his patience with me will never grow thin. He knows I live most of my life in the at first and the but then is coming and when it does, 
He's just going to be smiling at me when I get it and say, all right, son, here we go. Next one, here we go. He's so patient. So it should give us humility, gentleness with each other, and patience. Okay. That's scene two. Scene three, these Greeks come. They want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, for the first time, signals that the end is near. He's going to be... He's going to be lifted up, killed, and glorified. So there's a, a, a real change in the way he's talking. And then that leads to this conversation, beginning in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Guys, does Christianity call you to self-hatred? Because that's sure what it sounds like. That, does that not, is that not what it sounds like? The gospel does not call you to self-hatred. Every, every aspect of the narrative of the Bible pushes against that. Who created you? What did he say after he created you? And now he's asking you to hate the good, the very good thing that he created? Wait, 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 wait. Your soul reflects the image and likeness of God. Now he says, hate that soul? Hate who he's created me to be? Hate the reflection I am of God's image? It's not a call to self-hatred. We gotta be careful here. What's going on is this is actually a Hebrew idiom to show disparity or contrast between two choices preferences, if you will, okay? So, for example, it would be better to say this way. If you have come to love your life apart from Jesus, if you love the way that you live out from underneath God's kind, kingly rule, if you love your autonomy and your independence, if you love your convictions so much that they went, when they come into conflict with what Jesus says, you have to dance all the time to get what he says to fit what you say and what you believe rather than aligning your beliefs with his, right? If, if you're loving your preferences, autonomy, freedom, all these things, and you you, 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 you don't desire, you don't prefer life in submission to Jesus and life following Jesus and um, dying to yourself for Jesus and for others. Jesus is saying, you're gonna lose your life. That's what he's talking about. You will lose your life. You think you're finding life in aut autonomy and self-expression. Jesus says your life is ebbing away. The more you try to be autonomous, independent, and dig down deep to express yourself apart from Jesus, your life is dying one day at a time. If, on the other hand, you come not to prefer that, rather you prefer submission to Jesus and living into who he says that you are and living into uh, his beautiful description of what life is created for. You gain your life one day at a time. It's an eternal life, he says, which is not just forever. It's a different and better quality of life. But right here in this passage, we see that Jesus says, if you have come to see me as your life, you will go where I go and you will you will spend time where I spend time. Now, it's very important to, for us to see where he goes, where is it? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. That is where Jesus was going, to give his life, to die, and in his dying, much life would come. And so he calls us to the same when Jesus is our life. Say, all right, it's not about me anymore. It's not about my beauty, my strength. I don't need to be seen as good. I don't need to be seen as beautiful or strong or famous or better. I need to exist so that other people can see that Jesus is better and more beautiful and stronger and the giver of life. And so I'm gonna align my life to spend time in Jesus' place and to go where he goes, to follow his pattern, to die to myself for his fame. And his fame is always the good of other people because they see in him that beauty and that life. If you love your life without Jesus, you're gonna lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus and his kingdom, you keep it. We need to press on and begin finishing up. Uh, This rolls into our next scene. There's a conversation, verse 27. Jesus says, man, my soul is troubled by all this, but what am I gonna say? This is why I've come. This is the purpose for which I exist. A voice speaks from heaven. It's not so much for the sun, it's for the crowd. Jesus, there's another disagreement about who he is. Is he really the Messiah? Is he, why is he talking about dying? The Messiah is supposed to be around forever. So that reveals some more unbelief that's going on. And Jesus, in verse 36, urges them, listen, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So he departs, and verse 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And it fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. Look at this. Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Guys, in a sense, unbelief becomes its own judgment of more unbelief. As we continue to reject, so we're blind, right? There's a, a deadness about our souls outside of Jesus. There's a blindness to our eyes. There's a deafness to our ears. But as the light breaks in, as the sound breaks in, as the soil of my heart softens a little bit, as I reject that light, that sound, there, that rejection actually brings with it like a calcifying effect on my heart where my blindness grows more blind and my deafness grows more deaf and my deadness grows more dead, if you will. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Guys, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still, not did, they still did not believe in him. But look at verse 44. Look at this. Even though this was true, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes. Look, the prophecy from Isaiah was being fulfilled in Jesus' day. Nonetheless, just listen to what Jesus says as his final words to unbelieving hearts. Beginning in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now notice this though, this is important. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. They still have a judge, Jesus says. Look at what the judge is, or who the judge is. The word that I have spoken will stand against him or her in judgment on the last day. There's still a judge. 
Verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Okay, what is the Father's commandment? What does he want Jesus to say to those who are blind, deaf, and dead, who have rejected Jesus and have continued to reject Jesus, and in rejecting Jesus, reject the God who'd created him? What What would a God, do you imagine, want to say? Some angry, vengeful, judgment laden word, right? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment, his commandment, is what? Life, guys. Eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Guys, how gentle and patient and kind is our Father toward us. We are these people. We were these people. And in yet another rebel fit, in yet another raised fist, in yet another extended middle finger, the Father sends the Son and commands him, when you go, Son, we're going to speak words of life. We're going to call people who hate us to lay down their arms and to repent and to be adopted in as sons and daughters. And even in their last moment when they reject yet again, before you go to the cross and the greatest demonstration of my love, you're gonna speak that life-giving word again. And it was time. Fam, it was time. And guys, the gospel would say to us this morning, or maybe ask us, don't you think it's time? You know who you are. Some of you have lived a life of deafness and blindness and hard-heartedness towards the Father. And maybe you have learned how to live a, a religious expression, but there's no relational expression there for you and the Father. And you know Jesus is speaking to you right now. You see these words, you know there's a judge, and you know that his words stand in judgment against you. But you don't have to walk out of these doors rejecting him again today. You instead can see the Father as yet again kind and patient and merciful with another offer to believe that Jesus came as the light to pull you out of the darkness. And you can step into that light this morning. Why not today? Why not? Why not lay down your arms? Why not respond to the Father as good and kind and patient? That's his desire for you. It's our desire for you too. So we need to wrap And we need to wrap because this morning we're going to do what we do periodically, um, and it is a little unconventional, and we like it. We're going to have an open microphone after uh, a song or two and our communion, and the microphone stands as an invitation to you, just like the text stands as an invitation to you. See, the text stands as an invitation for us to be like Mary and to, uh, to be emotive, to be expressive, to share how good the Father has been to us through Jesus. It's that invitation to you. Uh, The invitation to name your fear, but to rehearse that my king has come and my king is coming. Man, I didn't didn't go there. I wish I had. In verse 10, that's okay. In verse 10, I think, um, did you notice like the crowds were growing and it says they actually came to see Lazarus just as much as they came to see Jesus. Did you see that? And so the, the leaders are plotting to do what? Did you see it? To put Lazarus to what? Death. Is that not comical or what? Imagine the joke with Lazarus and his boys around the table. He's going to kill me, dog. Like, do you want, should I walk out into the street right now? 
Like, let's do this. Do they not realize what just happened? And I guarantee you Lazarus was in the crowd when Jesus went into Jerusalem. So those words, fear not, your king is coming, had a special meaning for him. What are we afraid of, guys? If, like Lazarus, we come to see that Jesus is sovereign over us and I am untouchable until it's my time to go, he, will, he is for me, he will protect me, and when it is my time, death is not a death to me. It is just me going closer to home with my Father and with the Son. What are we afraid of when Jesus is our King? All right, I don't know where I was going with that second sermon. But the text stands as an invitation, guys. Name the fear and rehearse that Jesus is for us. And maybe finally, the text stands as an invitation to name a pocket of enduring unbelief that exists in my heart. And just to publicly confess, Jesus, I believe. I don't like these remaining pockets of unbelief in my heart. Let's name them and let's ask Jesus to help our hearts believe and see that he is better. So Grant, if you want to come, Grant or whoever is leading communion is going to lead us in our response and then Grant will announce when that open microphone comes. And when it does, it's right here. Just come on up, um, single file, and, and, and share. Um, however the Holy Spirit has led you during this time.